0: But what he fails to do is give an answer as to how is it possible for a creature to actually fight and thwart god's will in the world right because god is omnipotent so what what is stopping god from liberating black people or liberating all people right (laughs) because he's he's god he's omnipotent and if he loves us why doesn't he liberate why don't we see that liberation more more tangibly um, in, in, our, in our experience, because Cohen would say God has liberated and he is liberating, and I agree with him, but there still remains a question of why is it not more tangible than it is?
1: Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are continuing our discussion on Black Theodicy with Ingram London, a PhD student attempting to answer the questions of, where is God in the midst of Black suffering? Part one covers the first part of this conversation and is available on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. And I would encourage you to check it out in order to get some more framework for the conversation that we're having today. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. You can follow me at R Snow with an X. But right now, this is... Is Advent next? Okay. Well, let's get into it. I think we've oh. we've set the stage, <laughs> and I, I'm 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 interested in hearing, uh, okay. you know, yeah, how you're blending these together.
0: Sure. So, we're, I should probably start with with cone. So like I said before, there's there's this uh, extreme, I would say on the right of black theology, which is a, a Calvinistic determinist worldview that compromises the love of God. And then you have this extreme uh, on the left or, or progressive view, uh, which compromises the omnipotence of God while maximizing uh, God's, God's love and also maximizing human agency. And just side note, of course, uh, the, the Calvinistic view is going to um, eliminate human agency to a great degree because God is a puppet master. So those, those are kind of the, the two extremes that you can take. But what I think Cone did is, is great because what he did, he laid out like these parameters for what he would believe is, a, is an orthodox black theodicy. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he solved the problem but he gave us like the the borders of the sandbox, like where like you can play here and figure this out. But these are these are the boundaries, these are the swim lanes that, that you can operate in. And essentially it's just this that we cannot deny that God loves black people. We cannot deny that God is omnipotent, and yet we also must affirm that somehow black suffering has existed in our past and mm-hmm. even Uh, continues uh, to to exist in in some ways so he says that essentially that it's a denial of black faith to either compromise the love of God or to compromise uh, the omnipotence of God so that's that's where we start the his schema is essentially that Jesus is a conquering King Uh, he's a liberator He's not just a meek and mild lamb, right? He's he's the Jesus you see in the temple, cleansing (laughs) the temple. He's the Mm. Jesus that proclaims that he came to liberate the oppressed. He's the the victorious Jesus that comes out of of the tomb on on, uh, Easter Sunday. So that aspect of Christ is what he wants to focus on. And what he says is that Jesus is at war with demonic forces, in this world, oppressive demonic forces. And that's not just in regards to the black experience, but any oppression whatsoever. And Jesus is at war with those things. And after the resurrection, Jesus sent his spirit, which um, Paul talks about, wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And he makes this argument that wherever you see movements of liberation, whether they be Christian or not, that is the existential Christ working in our world to liberate oppressed peoples, and so that that's his that's his uh, answer in regards to the the, the suffering of, of of all oppressed peoples is that Jesus is fighting on your behalf, mm-hmm. and that he has redeemed your suffering by dying on the cross and and being resurrected. Mm-hmm. How does that work? It, to me, I'm still trying to figure out how he makes that, that claim. But the, the best that I can I can do to explain it is that essentially what he's saying is that by Jesus identifying himself with the oppressed, coming from a lower socioeconomic class, and being essentially lynched uh, by the state, he has uh, stood by doing that, he has stood in solidarity with the oppressed peoples throughout of uh, this world's mm-hmm. history, including black people. And in that way, he has redeemed suffering in the sense that he has taken away the stigma of suffering. So you are no longer, um, Christians should not operate with the worldview that you are suffering because God is punishing you. Mm-hmm. Because that, that obviously cannot be true because Jesus suffered and he was perfect, right? Yeah, so that's, that's, that's where I think he's, he's coming from. In addition to that, the resurrection of Christ also, in a way, uh, fuels uh, black liberation theology because Jesus has conquered death, and because he has conquered death on our behalf, he promises to us that we will also arise from the dead in in the resurrection, and that gives us the liberty or, or liberates us from the fear of fighting oppression it kind of goes back to what Jesus said, you know, fear those who can kill the soul, but don't fear those who can just kill the body, right? So that's so that's that's kind of where he's coming from. So you can see that his emphasis is not really theodicy though. His emphasis is liberation. That's what he's really focused on even though he's trying to address theodicy. And I think the the wall or the deficiency that he falls that his uh, theodicy falls prey to is actually something that all black theodicies fall prey to, uh, at least the ones that are, are prevalent today. And that is, there is no viable devil in any of those theodicies that I've described so far. Mm. So in Anthony Carter's, you know, Calvinistic, determinist worldview, the devil is irrelevant, right? We're all puppets on a string, including the devil. So the devil, he does not really even discuss the devil in, in his in his book so that's not a factor um and i'll i'll explain why that's important in in a second but even and then on the on the progressive side in process theology they don't talk about the devil that's not that's not really a factor okay cone talks about the devil he talks about demonic forces of white supremacy and oppression and all these different things but what he fails to do is give an answer as to how is it possible for a creature to actually fight and thwart God's will in the world, hmm. right? Because God is omnipotent. So what what is stopping God from liberating black people or liberating all people, right? <laughs> because right. He's, yeah. he's God, he's omnipotent. And if he loves us, why doesn't he liberate? Why don't we see that liberation more, more tangibly um, in, in, our, in our experience? Because Cone would say God has liberated and he is liberating and I agree with him, but there still remains a question of why is it not more tangible than it is? Yeah. And I think the issue there that Cohn ran into is that because of his historical critical uh, training in terms of how he approaches the interpretation of scripture, I think it, it kind of set him up to not take the devil as seriously.
1: Mm-hmm. And so,
0: he he didn't, I don't know if he felt the need to create an environment in, in which the devil would have some ability to thwart the, the will of God and prevent God from accomplishing his will uh, or at least impede his will for a time. And so I think that is where Adventism actually comes in, and we have a golden opportunity to actually contribute something to Black theology where mm-hmm. we can offer a plausible environment by where in which God is both omnipotent that he is omnibenevolent, that evil still exists in the world, that God is actually active in terms of liberating Black people or any oppressed people, but yet there are conditions under which God has to do that. Um, and, I, and I think that we as Adventists, yeah. we have the language to articulate that.
1: So I would like to, let's get into that language. I'm sure you're going to go there. Yeah. But because because it's so important because the question then is you know, well, God is omnipotent, so why can't he overpower the will of Satan, right? And right. that's the, the next question. So right. why would he be bound in any type of way? And like you're uh, probably going to express, Adventism right. can bring some uh, light to that. So how, how does it?
0: Yeah, so one of the issues that most of these uh, black theodicies fall, fall into, one of the uh, traps that they fall into is looking at the conflict between uh, Christ and uh, demonic forces, the devil, white supremacy, whatever you want to call it. They look at that conflict as a conflict of power.
1: Hmm.
0: And that's the problem. If you look at it as a conflict of power, if you reduce it to that, I'm not saying that power isn't involved. Of course, power is involved. But if you reduce it to that, then it doesn't make sense. The theodicy doesn't make sense because God could just overpower the devil. There's nothing stopping him from doing that in his schema. And the same with the other schemas as well. But what Adventism brings to the picture in regards to the great controversy or cosmic conflict worldview is that we bring the notion that in actuality, this conflict is not about power. It is about character. And we have biblical support for that in the book of Job. Um, you have this, uh, this situation where uh, an individual who is said to be perfect and, and blameless, you have Job, and he comes up in this cosmic trial that takes place in, in heaven, and you have God. And you have the devil there, who is accusing God of being unfair because He's not allowing Him to oppress Job. Uh, <laughs> that you've, you've placed a hedge of protection around Job, so I can't test Him to see whether He really loves you. And what He's what He's really implying to God is that you're a cheater. You you you're trying to to say that you have people that love you on Earth and that they're loyal to you, but you won't let me test them, right? So. <laughs> So that's, that's what's going on there. And there's actually um, uh, uh, what's it? Uh, John Peckham, which you've had on, on the show before. He, he teases this out in his book, uh, The Odyssey of Love, which is something I would highly recommend for, for people who want to kind of explore these issues. And he teases out the idea that basically what's happening is that the devil is bringing a, a covenant lawsuit against, against God and saying, you're violating the agreement that we have that I would have some type of free reign uh, on the earth to demonstrate the type of government that I want to run. Okay, and this goes back to the the original fall in in heaven, which we probably don't have time to get into to kind of recapitulate all of that. But, but maybe just can, give a
1: short summary yeah, of like, so of like just, what was the covenant here? Just yeah, so just a... Know.
0: So just a short, short summary. So you have in Revelation 12 and in various places throughout scripture, these uh, especially in Isaiah and Ezekiel, there's this being, this creature called Lucifer, who apparently is an angelic being, uh, very high up in the government of, of God. And he, at some point, for whatever reason, decides to rebel against God. And he wants to essentially um, uh, create his own government, that is not uh, under the control of God. And so he was able uh, through a a misfortune on on our part as humanity to take over our world. And so he's called the prince of the power of of the air of this world or the God of this world. And so he has a limited jurisdiction over this world and he is in conflict with with God over this territory of, of our planet. And so essentially his original fall was based around the idea that God is, is selfish and, and we don't need to uh, obey God because God is selfish and I'll prove it to you. I will show you a different type of government where we don't have to follow uh, the commandments of God and everyone can be free to do what they want. And, and so that's mm-hmm. essentially what happened. So Lucifer rebels against God, becomes Satan, uh, the accuser uh, and the devil. And he has limited jurisdiction over this world. And so uh, there's this cosmic conflict over this, uh, who who gets to reign over this world. And so Christ came, uh, did a kind of an an invasion, a (laughs) D-Day invasion uh, with his incarnation. And now Christ actually has reclaimed humanity as the second Adam uh, and, and claims jurisdiction over this world. But there's still a fight going on. And right, we're caught still... in the in the crosshairs or in, in mm-hmm. the uh, conflict.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And so, and so he's before, and I think this is such a, a powerful point because, you know, I think it answers some of the questions of, like, why would God bind himself in such a terrible contract to where he would allow suffering, right? And if he is, you know, involved in this contract where he says, I have to prove my character, that I'm loving and I'm benevolent and that I'm not an abusive power, but that, in fact, it's Satan who is an abusive power and a, and a liar and a killer, um, that there are things that, you know, even when you look at God's relationship with humanity, I mean, it's the ultimate display of, like, how does all power interact with those of no power? And it also plays into the fact that of, of free will. You know, like, how does God... Uh, navigate free will without using the all the power available to him to manipulate our feelings to manipulate our choices to just or just overpower us into into doing his will and because to do that of itself would turn him into a tyrant and it's just this delicate play and interplay that he has to have with uh our free will and it does offer a little bit of uh, more insight into like okay why he would bind himself to what seems to me a very terrible contract uh, to, to limit himself in, in the ways that he is able to exercise his own agency.
0: Yeah, and what's important to remember in in this, this contract is that it, it is not simply just God and the devil. That, mm. see, God has to prove his character not to himself. He knows who he is, and he doesn't really need to prove his character to the devil. The devil knows who God is. He's just a liar and making accusations. But what God has to do is prove his character to the entire universe. And so you see that there's these other beings and, and whatnot in uh, in the book of Job. And it's mentioned in other places in, in scripture as well, there, where God has to demonstrate, and for some reason has condescended to uh, allow himself to be evaluated by, by his own creatures, right? And so he has to operate in such a manner that he does not actually undermine his own argument of being a God of love and someone that cherishes the free will of his creatures. And so if he just destroyed Satan at the beginning of his rebellion, well, that would kind of prove Satan's point. Yeah, he's a tyrant. If you don't agree with him, he'll just kill you. Right. (laughs) So... (laughs) But, uh, but at the same time, God is still actually working for the, the liberation of people and he's fighting against evil. And so that's, that's where we come in, is where we have to make choices in regards to who is it that we want to align ourselves with. Do we want to align ourselves with the kingdom of darkness or do we want to align ourselves with the kingdom of light uh, that uh, Jesus inaugurated with, uh, with his baptism in, in the Gospels? So that's, that's kind of the environment um, so essentially there's we can tease out that there's some type of an agreement between God and the devil in terms of how the great controversy will play out uh, what what is allowed what's not allowed and we see in the book of job where the devil is accusing God of, of breaking the contract and saying look you're you're protecting people that you have no right to protect and so that, that's that's what's going on there um, and this is why the covenant is so important just not to go too far off on, on a tangent but this this idea of of covenant is so important in in the Old Testament where you have the children of Israel where they're breaking covenant with God and God is trying to bring them back into covenant constantly so that he can protect them against the attacks of, of their enemies which were uh, orchestrated and inspired by Satan so these these things are, are extremely important in understanding what's going on behind the scenes in the in the biblical narratives um, how this relates to theodicy, though, <laughs> so, so how, how this relates is that it gives us a viable environment or a plausible environment for how we can do what Cohn recommended, which is not to compromise the love of God and not to compromise his omnipotence, his power, and yet also deal with reality, with the reality of the fact that evil and uh, in this case, black suffering does exist. And the way that it does that is that it says, yes, God is omnipotent. It affirms that God is absolutely omnipotent. There is no power greater than God in terms of sheer force of of will and might. But that's not what the battle is over. And so God cannot use just sheer force in order to win this controversy. That's, That's not how he's going to win. He has to win by demonstration of character. And because it's a demonstration of character that is at, at, at play here, or that is um, in question here, then there has to be certain rules of engagement in regards to how the great controversy will play out on, on our planet. God cannot just unilaterally act whenever He wants to uh, and, 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 and violate this this agreement that He has with the devil, or else He undermines His own His own uh, argument in in this covenant. Um, and cosmic conflict. So when it comes to black theodicy, and we we look at what God has done throughout the biblical narrative, we see that there are times where God can act, right? We we can't deny that. So you have the flood, you have the cross. um, We have something that we're all looking forward to, the second coming, where God is going to act uh, unilaterally. And you have the Exodus account as well. But we also see situations in scripture where God doesn't act or he acts under uh, certain uh, circumstances. And, and those circumstances have to actually come to pass before he will act. So what I mean by that, and it's, this is, um, I'm going to borrow the language from, uh, from John Peckham, is that there are rules of engagement in regards to what God can do in the world when he is fighting against evil and oppression. And in our uh, topic today, fighting against the oppression and, and suffering of black people. So God is, and this is a very difficult thing to, to grasp sometimes, and it sounds heretical, but essentially God is constrained by the rules of engagement. And unless certain trigger clauses are, are, are tripped or, or, in, or, or, or um, enacted, then he's not able to to act because it would violate the the covenant and God does not break promises, He doesn't lie. So
1: So what are some of these trigger clauses so we can So
0: So what what are the trigger clauses? So um some of these trigger clauses are for example prayer. Hmm. So prayer so God tells us to, to pray and to pray without ceasing. And he gives examples. For example, uh, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, where he talks about a, a widow who needs uh, some type of uh, meeting out of justice for, for some issue that she has. And she goes to a so-called unjust judge. That's what, what Christ calls this, this person in the parable. And this unjust judge will not listen to the widow. Um, but Jesus says that this widow, she just keeps coming back over and over and over again, presenting her case. And eventually the unjust judge says, okay, fine, I'll relent. I'll do this, whatever this widow wants me to do, because she's wearing me out. <laughs> so, and, and God, uh, and Jesus says that, um, uh, how much more so does God want to avenge us and avenge us speedily? Um, but what's interesting about it is that Luke, at the beginning of that parable He says the purpose of this parable is that Jesus wanted to tell people that they why they should always pray. Hmm. And so prayer acts as one of those trigger clauses that allows God to act because it seems as if when we're praying that God is unjust because he's not actually doing what what we want him to do. He's not liberating. He's not freeing people And, and these different things that we're praying for. But in reality, what's going on is that God is bound and that he cannot act until someone actually prays or else he will violate this covenant agreement. You see the same thing in the book of Daniel, where uh, Daniel prays and he's fasting and there's a, I believe it's the angel Gabriel is sent to him, and he, and Gabriel when he finally does get to, um, to, to the prophet Daniel, he says that the prince of Persia, and you can find this in, in Daniel chapter ten. He says the prince of Persia withstood me, and prince of Persia is just a euphemism for Satan in, in this, because uh, that's the power behind that throne uh, at yeah. that time. That the devil was keeping me from getting to you to give you some key information, and also. From uh, getting the the Persian rulers to actually liberate the the uh, the Jewish people and allowing them to go back home, so you see here again a situation where there are there it, it, it's a real fight like there, there's real like jurisdiction mm-hmm. and territory fights over what god can do and what satan can do in in this world and what happens is that when god's people pray and when we fast and when we worship we we engage in spiritual exercises intercessory prayer and all these different things that it gives god the divine right to then act in uh, mm-hmm. on our behalf so that's right. it's it's really the premise behind intercessory prayer, if you if you think about it.
1: I, I really love you know prayer as a trigger cause, and and yeah. and yes, Peckham did talk about this uh, on a Theodicy podcast. So please do listen to it if you haven't. But I think it's. I so, want to
0: add a caveat to that though as well. But go ahead. <laughs> uh, okay, it, yeah. uh,
1: I think what's so interesting for me is like I feel like hearing that for the first time. Help me to take more ownership of prayer. You know, a lot of times you say, like, prayer is to align your mind with the mind of God. And, like, well, that's true. You know, a part of me can start getting into the place of, like, well, well, then why do I need to pray? You know, like, okay, what if... Mm-hmm. Like, why do I need to ask him for things? Or why, why intercede at all if he already knows my heart and he's all-knowing and he's all-loving and he wants to do the right thing? What difference does prayer make? Right? And I think this the idea of the great controversy and the trigger clauses helps us see like where prayer fits in, in kind of, you know, accessing, a, a divine, uh, you know, divine resource, a divine help that you might not otherwise have access to or why it might not otherwise happen unless you did pray. So yeah, yeah caveat. It,
0: exactly. So, but, but yeah, I, I, I want to definitely reiterate that, that that's, that is the basis behind behind prayer, then that's what makes it uh, actually attractive to something that you want to engage in because there are situations that would not be rectified. There are evils that would not be corrected, that they will not be corrected unless God's people actually, actually pray and, and, mm-hmm. and actually legally unbind God's hands actually to, to do something about uh, the mm-hmm. evils that we see in the world. Um, the caveat I wanted to, to add to um, the, these trigger clauses is that they're not all spiritual. So it's, it's not always just about, well, well, people are not praying enough or, or, or people are not fasting enough or, or whatever the, the, the case may be. But there's also another trigger is actually human beings taking initiative and actually doing something in active resistance against evil. That can also act as a trigger clause for God, and so that He is liberated then, or or, or freed, or, or unconstrained to actually work on behalf of humanity. Yeah. So I, I'll give you an example. Um, this is again from from Ellen White, and she's talking about the conflict between the North and the South, and in regards to uh, the Fugitive Slave Act. She she says that uh, I was shown that these national fasts. So um, apparently the, uh, a national fast was declared and days of prayer or whatever, leading up to the civil war. And even during the civil war, um, she says that these were an insult to Jehovah. These are mm. an insult to God. <laughs> he wow. accepts no, he accepts no fast. Great men professing to have human hearts have seen the slaves almost naked and starving and have abused them and sent them back to their cruel masters, hopeless bondage. They have deprived them of their liberty and free air, which heaven has never denied them and then left them to suffer for food and clothing. In view of all this, a national fast is proclaimed. Oh, what an insult to Jehovah. So we see here that if you fast and pray, but then your action, either you remain on the sidelines or you don't do do anything, that God actually, it's an insult to God for you you to pray because God is like, you know what my will is. Yes. Go and do it. <laughs> so,
1: wow. So
0: that's that's the, the the caveat that I have there. It's not just about prayer. It's not just about uh, fasting and, and these types of spiritual exercises, but actually exercising our agency as image bearers and, and doing something in in the world. You you don't have to go to Ellen White to see that that principle. You can you can see it in Scripture as well. In Isaiah chapter one and, and chapter two, or God. Uh, Says that you know your your Sabbaths are an abomination to me. Your sacrifices and your prayers and your fasts are an abomination to me because you're not liberating the oppressed. So that yeah. that concept is is already there in in scripture as as well.
1: That's so huge. I mean, I think it it just takes this sense of you know uh, this passivism in prayer, and I, I think that's why people are so drawn to the story of David and Goliath, right? Because here's somebody who prayed, but also put that faith into action, right? And that God was able to do something beyond what David of himself was able to do in that particular situation with Goliath. And we see that in different stories we see it with Gideon. We see it with uh, just different uh, areas where God is, is, is kind of maximizing or, or like just acting in miraculous, way. or even with Moses, right? Stepping into the Red Sea. Like he had to have action before God, you know, uh, went the extra mile. And I think it really helps us to take ownership of like our participation in this matters and to, to take the passive role of hoping for God to do everything for us. Um, is not, it's not a, it's not a practical theology. So yeah, yeah. it's
0: not practical and it's not biblical. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, to put it succinctly, you know, James said, faith without works is dead. So that's, that's, that's what it comes down to, the, the bottom line there. Um, but yeah, in, in, in terms of, of Black theodicy and answering the question of why certain sufferings have befallen African Americans, when you take into account these this uh, expanded uh, articulation of the great controversy in terms of covenants and trigger clauses and whatnot. Now we have a, a, a plausible environment. And I want to be clear here. I'm not saying we have the answer. Like, I, we can't say definitively. The reason why is because we were short, you know, 100 people praying and that's why <laughs> the transatlantic slave trade happened. No, that's not yeah. what we're saying. What What I'm saying is just yeah. that with all of these other variables at play, we could see plausibly how this could have happened. That God's hands could have been tied um, for whatever reasons within the covenant to stop the transatlantic slave trade and and to uh, not end uh, slavery sooner than than what it did. I have my own theories and ideas about how why that was. I'm not going to share them now because I'm still developing them. Um, but yeah, we we need to. Uh, we need to just understand that there's an environment by which this could work that those three propositions again can all still be true that black people yeah. have suffered but yet god is still loving and he's still omnipotent
1: yeah and it's and it's hard it's hard because it's it's like e- even even with the yeah. uh the framework right there, like you said, there's some things that are so horrendous that you're just like, really? You couldn't have broke the claws just once. Yeah. I think you still would have thought you were a good guy, God. Right? <laughs> but, right? And I think it's a hard place to really kind of come and reconcile. But it also shows the importance of like, you look at people like Harriet Tubman, who she really did do an extraordinary thing, you know, but she also, nope. you know, she did the underground railroad, but she also like, uh, you know, um, chart, you know, led some rebellions. Right. Mm-hmm. And in which there was bloodshed. And it's like, you can see, you know, the evil of slavery. One, it's the opposite of free will, right. It's, it's taking the one thing that God said is so precious and it's, and it is binding people to do something that's against their conscience. It's against their agency stripping them of the one thing that is you know of, of one of the highest values to god and also it makes them feel like they can't act right so that even if they're they were to say okay we're going to uh we're going to do something in this situation it really puts them in a situation not only mentally but systemically economically physically like it places them in a place where they're unable to uh, use their agency for their own freedom but you do see some places like you know Haiti uh, where they were able to organize a a rebellion and right uh, and free themselves right and in other situations that didn't happen and you always wonder well why and I would hate I would never put the onus upon the victims in that situation Uh, but you just you know you always hope that history would have turned out a little differently
0: yeah and just to your point I in this situation, and this is what is so unique about the the African American situation, um, there there are other horrendous evils in, that have uh, occurred in in history. We've I've mentioned the Holocaust. I've mentioned uh, the 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 outcome of Manifest Destiny and the, the genocide of, of Native Americans. Those mm-hmm. are horrendous evils, but. What is particularly horrendous, at least from a Christian perspective, uh, in regards to the African-American experience, is that you have Christians oppressing other Christians.
1: Mm.
0: So it's when when we talk about the onus or who's responsible, I mean, and, you know, Ellen White talks about this as well, that God punished both the South and the North Mm. for the sin of, of slavery. So, uh, of course, black people were praying. <laughs> of course, black people yeah. were 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 asking and petitioning God to to deliver us. And some of them took, uh, you know, active uh, resistance by uh, through various means. Whether that was you know actually running away and escaping, which is what what my ancestors did on my mother's side. Mm. Um, or others actually, yeah, tried to lead rebellions or uh, different things of that nature. And even, you know, just, I mean, we, we may, you know, smile about it, but even the protest of not working as hard as you could, it was a protest against the indignity that was being done against you. Yeah. So that's, our, our people fought against slavery in various ways as, as they knew how and as they saw would be beneficial uh, for themselves to either reaffirm their own imago Dei, the, the image of God in themselves, or, or to really actually attain liberty by, by running away um, mm. from, from slavery. But I, I would say the onus is, is more on the oppressors who were Christians, right? Yeah. They were baptized Christians, and, yeah. and yet they could do this to, to other human beings. So the, the mm-hmm. onus is more on why why were people not moved uh, earlier uh, by the Holy Spirit and why yeah. why did they reject the wooings of the Holy Spirit to do something uh, earlier that's that's the real question
1: Why did it take so long exactly for, for yeah. them to to really rise up and then even now there's still the uh, you know we still have the remnants of slavery with us and the remnants mm-hmm. of uh, that evil you know in the form of different systematic oppressions. And, and we still have the question to us today, why is it taking us so long to say something or do something about it as a church?
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and it's important to, to remember that, you know, this cosmic conflict that we're living in, you know, Satan doesn't rest. Like he's, he's constantly attempting to get human beings to destroy one another. Uh, he has a special antipathy towards humanity for whatever reason, uh, and it seems almost at times he has a special antipathy of, uh, towards certain sectors of humanity even, um, for, for whatever reasons, uh, again. And and so we, we have to be careful and cautious uh, as Christians that we not be deceived um, by temptations to, uh, to oppress others and more likely even to just be indifferent to the sufferings uh, of others, whether it be you know the situation that that occurred if, um with the children at the border or or other uh, you know Muslim bands and all these different things that that have occurred uh recently, we need to just be careful about what positions we we take in regards to these things because God yeah. is watching um
1: yeah and now, follow the money yeah oh yeah just start. Yeah, follow to- the money
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, right
1: I mean because there's so much power in being a conscious consumer, you yeah. know, like lo- looking at um, different industries, like uh, coffee industries. Sure. Uh, if, 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 you, if you do purchase, you know, are you purchasing from a fair trade corporation or are you buying big names at, that, that don't have the same kind of wage labor and mm-hmm. regulations that other fair trade companies or even the environmental concerns that other yeah. fair trade companies? Same thing with the shoes that you buy and the clothes that you wear, like these companies today, you know, injustice is still happening. You know, we still have a form of slavery that exists among us, uh, sometimes in, in in the real, literal uh, fashion mm-hmm. of people's being, you know, snatched and, and forced to work in different factories or uh, just economic vulnerabilities that, that are being taken advantage of. So, yes, follow the money and be a conscious consumer. And, you know, just if you can't take a stand... In a, in a more overt way, you can at least take a stand in, in your purchasing power. So. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to go back to the, the point I was making earlier in regards to the the uniqueness of the African-American situation where it's, it's one part of the body of Christ oppressing uh, another part. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I want to bring in this other element that I think that Adventism has something to say uh, in regards to, to that issue. And that is the, the sanctuary doctrine, um, which uh, sometimes we refer to a, a portion of that doctrine as the investigative judgment. Some people use a pre-advent judgment. And what I want to highlight there is that um, Ellen White, very interestingly, the her earliest statements about African Americans are typically um, on, on a backdrop of either the great controversy or the idea of the investigative judgment coming to a close. Mm. And so when she talks about the investigative judgment, she talks about, for example, she references Psalm 56.8, and she says that um, the let me see the quotation here says the tears of the pious bondmen and bond women, talking about African American slaves, the tears of the pious bondmen and bond of fathers, mothers, and children, brothers and sisters are all bottled up in heaven. And then mm-hmm. she goes on talking about how their their masters will suffer the seven last plagues and the wrath of God and hellfire. So I think there's a perspective of, my, my point is that I think there's a perspective of the sanctuary that we often don't emphasize. Uh, typically, when we talk about the investigative judgment or the pre-advent judgment, we, we talk about our own uh, personal piety, whether we're going to make it or not, and, and that type of thing is try to uh, unfortunately, some people use the, the doctrine to scare people in regards to their assurance of salvation. And, and I think that's, that's wrong headed. I, I think what we really need to be emphasizing, is, especially in, in these times as, as present truth, is the, the vindication aspect of the investigative judgment mm-hmm. and also the uh, exposure uh, aspect. Uh, of, of the investigative judgment. And what I mean by that is that um, Ellen White talks about, again, from the, the, the backdrop of the, of the sanctuary, talking about the pious slave whose chains will fall off at, at the second coming and these, these types of things where God is vindicating the slave, right, and condemning the master. Both of them claim to be Christians. Both are Christians. But yeah. he vindicates a slave and he exposes the master for, for what they are, that they are actually not Christians. And we mm-hmm. see this throughout the, the Old Testament as well, the same concept. So you see it in, uh, in Matthew, uh, it's the New Testament, you see it in Matthew 25 where Christ actually lays out you know, the, the criteria for the judgment, which we, for some reason we skip over in regards to treating foreigners properly and, and, and helping the widow and, and the hungry and all of these different things. We, we don't usually talk about that when it comes to the investigative judgment, but that's what Christ actually points to as the criteria for the judgment. That's the evidences that will be submitted. Did you help the hungry? Did you visit those who were in prison? Did you treat foreigners properly? And these types of things. Um, But you also see it in in the Old Testament, especially explicitly tied to the sanctuary, uh, the Psalms of Asaph uh, are are very clear about that, especially Psalm 73, where Asaph is contemplating the same or a very similar situation that African-Americans went through, where you have the elite of, uh, of the Southern kingdom of Judah uh, the, the aristocracy who are oppressing the, the lower classes of Israelites. They're all, they're all Israelites. They're all the people of God, all descendants of Abraham. And yet you have the elite oppressing uh, the, the poor and the downtrodden. And Asaph says, you know, I, I couldn't comprehend these things. And I almost lost my faith because of it, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And that's why
0: we do is to help people not to lose their faith. Uh, o- over this issue. And, and he says, it didn't make any sense until I went to, into the sanctuary. And, and he says, somehow, we don't, we don't know exactly what his experience was, but by contemplating the sanctuary or being in the sanctuary, he realized that the, he saw the end. He saw the end result of the wicked. He, mm-hmm. he saw the end result of those who, even though they're supposedly a part of the household of faith, that their, the way that they lived their lives and conducted their lives and oppressing others and mistreating others, that he saw their end, which was actually to be lost and finally destroyed. And we see the same exact parallel uh, in, in the writings of, of Ellen White, applying it specifically to African-Americans in our experience in regards to slavery and the relationship between the slaves and, and their masters. Wow.
1: Wow. You've given us so much to think about today, and I'm so grateful for having you on because these are questions that people will lose their faith over and, and yeah. are still wrestling with because you know, to have a loving relationship with God, you have to trust Him. Exactly. And answers to questions like this that sometimes feel a little bit sketch, and you're like, God, I, I don't understand why, this would, why you would allow this. I hope that this provides some framework for some people uh, that might be you know wrestling with some of that and but I wanted to give you kind of the last word and like anything that you wanted to share that we didn't get to today uh, I'd love for you to share it now
0: yeah the the thing I wanted to to share um, or, or one thing I want to share is actually it's another quote so <laughs> I apologize for that no, it's it's, okay, it's, it's, a, it's another quote from from Ellen White and I, I do need to um, give a shout out to uh, Matthew Cortman for, for pointing my attention to this quote. Um, it's, it's, a, it's very interesting. It's, it's from Review and Herald, uh, December 17th, uh, 1895. And uh, Ellen White is the, the author here. And she says, God, God spoke concerning the captivity of the colored people as verily as he did concerning the Hebrew captives and said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them. The Lord wrought in freeing the southern slaves. So I just want to wanted to share that quotation because really, you can extrapolate the the three major uh, concerns of black theology from that that particular article, and I think even from this the short quotation, black liberation is there. God. Is actively uh, uh, liberating oppressed people. He says, "I've come down to deliver them." Right, and what was the mechanism? Apparently, the Civil War. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've seen him demonstrate his his concern for for the uh, suffering of Black people in the past, and we and that gives us hope that he is still concerned and will actually bring an end to our suffering but we also see black dignity uh, affirmed. Why would God call us his people? Uh, you see Ellen White is, is doing something very interesting, taking that that language from the Exodus and applying it directly to the African-American experience. And God is calling black people his people, right? So he's affirming that that we belong to him. Uh, but it also uh, deals with the question of theodicy because the what, The question of theodicy, the underlying question is, why isn't God doing anything? And what we see in this quotation is that God was doing something, and he's still doing something in terms of the liberation of the oppressed.
1: I hope you all were encouraged by this week's message, part two on Black Theodicy, as we try to tackle some pretty difficult questions. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at AdventNext. You can follow me at Kendra Arsnow with an X. So what did you think about this week's podcast? If you enjoyed, please share and leave a comment below. And if there are subjects you would like me to cover next, subscribe and leave a comment. See you next week.